I have a proclamation for you, a declaration, if you will. I want to be Gandalf. You knew it was coming. Those of you that have listened to me long enough and know me long enough knew that the transformation was impending, that eventually my, my nerdism for Lord of the Rings would eventually take over and I'd have to just make the transformation. I, I've made a determination. There were so many characters to pick from. Getting a real low-end uh, feedback here, Ron. I made, I made a determination based on looking at the whole fellowship who I wanted to be. Uh, you laugh, but when we went to see one of the several Hobbit viewings I went to this time, and I'm probably not done yet, but one of the Hobbit viewings, there was somebody there dressed as Gandalf. I mean, pointy hat, long beard, everything. It was awesome. And so, uh, I, I, but I, I have a challenge. If I'm going to be Gandalf, I have to work on my facial hair problem because what you see is about what I can produce. So... There is a reason why I had nine children to prove that I, in fact, was a man, because the facial hair does not reveal it. It just figures that I'm living in a time where beards are the thing, because I'm like, oh, man, I can't follow the fad, so it's leaving me behind. And the other challenge I have is my wife would never let me grow my hair out that long anyway, so so I guess I have to have some parts of my transformation to Gandalf be delayed or non-existent. But in all, well, I can't say in all seriousness, I don't really want to be Gandalf, but I guess the reasons why I'm drawn to him as a character, if you don't know who Gandalf is, then see me afterwards. We're having a prayer service up here. Special time of healing for you to be familiar with who Gandalf is. And no, he's not the wizard from Harry Potter. He's a fake. <laughs> Dumbledore. He's no wizard. Anyway, so... Uh, what I've appreciated the most about Gandalf is his ability to see the big picture and he gets involved. He instigates things. He starts things up and it eventually leads great armies to war just from a, a wizard's meddling, if you will, getting around and pushing various pieces. And as he says, kicking somebody out the door. So he's got an eye on the big picture and he knows where things should go and how things are going to are going to uh, play out, perhaps. He's still a cranky old man. You would be too if you were around for thousands of years and seeing the same old thing. But, but in, in the midst of all his crankiness, though, he notices the details. He builds the relationships along the way. He knows that certain characters need courage in order to see it through. And so he takes the time while he's moving big pieces. He takes the time to deal with the little details and build those relationships all along the way. And so as I'm thinking about it, if I could just pick a set of characteristics, those would be the characteristics I would love to have. I guess it's the amalgamation of all the various parts of his wisdom and his um, and, and his compassion and all those things coming together makes him what I think is a, a great fictional instructor. I do believe he's fictional. There are some times where my lines are blurred a little bit, but I think I've got a fairly good grasp of reality that he doesn't exist. Uh, one time, Pastor Bill was talking about history, which he knows a lot about, U.S. history, and he was looking at me like, how can you not know this? I said, I'm still trying to catch up on my Middle Earth history. So once I get done with Middle Earth, I can move on to U.S. So it's, I'm almost there. But I see all those pieces coming together. And I think that's what makes a leader effective is to have all of the, the balance of being able to see the big picture, but not getting lost in the big picture to where you don't pay attention to the details. 
Uh, Gene Getz is an author of a book called The Measure of a Man, and his uh, chapter-by-chapter uh, treaty of uh, 1 Timothy 3 is what I've been loosely using as we've been going through for nearly, a, uh, well, about three-quarters of a year now, going through 1 Timothy 3, talking about what God expects for leadership in his church. And so I've been reading Gene Getz's book along the way because I think it's a very basic and helpful um, explanation of the various components of, of this passage. And he tells a story of a man in Texas who is a, a CEO of a banking system, a, a, an institution of banks in Texas, and it was the, the largest system in Texas. And he was, uh, he was leading them through a lot of changes as CEOs are often asked to do. And at the same time, legislation in the state was being crafted that was starting to deal with how much access to loaning and other banking measures that minorities could have. And so, as you can imagine, there's no small amount of controversy in dealing with something like that. And so this CEO is trying to successfully run a corporation, but at the same time is somewhat instrumental in helping legis- the legislature craft the right bill and, and all that kind of stuff. So eventually the protests, those that are feeling disenfranchised, the, the minorities that said we're being redlined or we're being cut out of the uh, of the uh, the loaning process and everything, they start marching, they start building a movement, and they show up on the doorstep of the CEO's house one Saturday morning while he's having breakfast with his wife. So imagine his surprise as he comes to the front door and there's cameras and boom microphones, and then there's people that are shoving a, uh, a, a piece of paper on a clipboard and saying, please sign this confession and apology that you have led to the discrimination of minorities uh, in our state. And, of course, he had his own opinion. Uh, and the opinion, in hindsight, was that m- minorities were not being redlined. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, the issue uh, of, of what was happening in the legislation that we're focusing on this morning. What happened at that moment on this guy's lawn was that he realized... He, he understood a setup was coming. He was either going to say no comment, slam the door, and then the media got what they wanted, right? Because he looks like a stuffy, uninvolved CEO, rich type he, who doesn't care about the needs of the people. Or he signs the confession to try to be nice to everybody and they say, we got you. So it was a very disingenuous move on their part. It was a trap. But he had the wisdom to recognize this is a trap right on my doorstep. So instead of getting the door slammed in their face, instead of getting the signature that they were hoping for, instead what they got was an invitation to the living room to have coffee with he and his wife. And so the protesters, some of them started filing in, the camera crews started coming in and setting up, and uh, his wife kept the coffee coming, and he sat everybody down, made sure they were comfortable, and then had a back-and-forth dialogue about um, uh, his history of living in that state and dealing with minorities and his approach to all of that talked about the uh, finer points of the legislation. He was able to, to handle all of that intellectually. And instead of getting a media um, uh, massacre on his hands, he ended up getting thank yous from everybody on their way out. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for explaining your position. And so uh, this gentleman has gone back to the author, Gene Getz, and, and said to him, because he, he was in his church, and said, you know, it... it, it, it made an understanding to me that it's not just about being able to to have the right answer. It's also in the way you deliver. It's also in the approach that you take. 
You see, someone who has the individual skills to perhaps manage finances better than anyone else may be a successful banker, and he may be looked at or she may be looked at as someone who might be able to rise to the top. But only somebody that's able to combine brilliant financial skills with good people skills and with a good awareness of what the need is for the moment and can, can, can blend all those things together and act appropriately as the need is calling for, that's the person who's going to be a leader and is going to make a big difference. He or she will make the bigger impact. So coming back to our text that we've been moving slowly through for so long, if you've not been here for more than a couple of months, then this would be new to you. Um, but we have a whole series on our website uh, under this, this section of leadership under 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 2 is all we've been able to get through. Uh, but the intent here is to focus on what does God require for leadership in his assembly, in his church. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2, up against my quantum mechanics chalkboard background. Pretty cool, right? I didn't know that it was quantum mechanics until Google said at the bottom, quantum mechanics chalkboard. But it, it might serve a purpose. That's what you're going to see throughout the, throughout the morning here. The scripture says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So by way of review, what we've been talking about since April of last year, believe it or not, is that leadership qualifications are bigger than popular opinion. You and I have a tendency to process a grid based on what we find comfortable, safe, predictable, something we can relate to, and then we nominate or elect that person in our lives, be it office or any other thing, and we say, I can follow that person's leadership. And oftentimes, the initial uh, qualifications we give are ones that are, they match kind of popular opinion. They could be based on nearly, uh, merely externals or the way somebody talks or the way somebody uh, looks or perhaps they have financial success or something and we, and we gravitate towards them in a sense that says you're the kind of leader we can follow. So God is knowing the human heart, knowing who we would ne ne um, have a tendency to say these are the people that can lead our church. God says I want to cut that off at the pass and say my qualifications are not necessarily the ones that American Idol sees, are not necessarily the ones of the anchor that you would put on the newscast is not necessarily the one that you would vote for in public office. My qualifications run deeper than that. And what we see from 1 Timothy 3 is that there's a balance of many characteristics required in order for someone to be considered as a, a leader in God's assembly. Just excellence in one or two areas isn't enough. God wants balance. So by way of review through the list, he says this uh, man should have a good reputation. We know that accusations come, but things aren't going to stick for this person. The accusations will be explained or they, they, they just won't have any traction. This person will be a one woman man. He will not be uh, one with uh, wandering eyes. He won't be one with a uh, sketchy track record and all those kinds of things uh, currently going on in his life. He's a one woman man. He's balanced. He stands on truth and doesn't chase extremes. He's not prone to being blown about by the wind and getting freaked out when this news report comes out and all these kinds of things. He's balanced, stable, somewhere in the middle, keeping an eye on everything but not being swayed 
by everything. This person will be wise, informed by God on all matters. Respectable, which means uh, somebody who attracts people to the gospel through their character and lifestyle instead of the opposite, which is somebody who's overbearing or maybe not a good example or something. And so the gospel message is somewhere in the background because that person's uh, lifestyle or personality is getting in the way. Also, somebody who is hospitable, who's willing to share resources, both personal and corporate, with those in need. And so there's quite a list here. And as I've said in the beginning, it seems funny for a a pastor who's one of the leaders in a church to be going through this list because it almost sounds like, you see, I got all these and I don't, at least not in balance, at least not to the proportion where every time I see this list, God says, no, see, we're going to work on this, right? Yes, sir. And we're going to work on this because this has gotten sloppy, right? But the idea is that God holds the ideal out, but knows that he's working with imperfect people. He knows that he's working with people who are trying to attain to the things in this list, the characters that are in this list, knowing that they will not do it perfectly. And so grace is afforded on both sides of the pulpit. Grace from God's people that say we don't expect our leaders to be absolutely perfect and grace from God that says I don't expect them to be absolutely perfect either. So we come to the last uh, phrase in verse two, which is which will be our focus for this morning. And I'm going to have to move very, very quickly because what we're also going to be doing close to the bottom of the hour, we may be at like nine thirty five if my watch is on with everybody else's, but about nine thirty five or so we'll be dismissing um, the ladies and asking the men to stay behind. We only do this once a month um, it going to sound a little weird if you're a visitor here. It's not a chauvinist kind of thing. Uh, really what it is, is uh, we, we want our men's full attention and uh, to be able to share with them a challenge that, uh, that is, is for them uh, directly. So we believe and we've seen it played out that it, it creates great leadership in our, in our congregation and, uh, and frankly, our wives appreciate it. So, so we'll be asking as soon as these uh, service is concluded uh, for the ladies to allow the men to stick behind and and do this thing. All right. So somebody who is able to teach and teaching, biblically speaking, is more than just dispersing uh, intellectual truths for the sake of increasing somebody's knowledge, though that aspect of it is important. That's not where it it resides, because what's what's going on to the audience in Timothy's day is is an Eastern or an ancient form of training or teaching that involves a lot more than just somebody standing up front and people taking notes and saying, got it, I'll go and try to figure out what I'm supposed to do. It's much more involved than than just that. It's more than just skilled communicators or or good orators or somebody who is motivational with that ability. And it often wasn't in a lecture only format. You see, teaching or being able to teach goes beyond skills. It hits something much deeper. If I were to write a paper to you about the abuse of those adorable little fuzzy seals, you know, the ones with the big giant eyes. And we know that there's been some like brutality in there. I don't follow it too much. But if I were to write a paper to prove to you that was going on, what do you think my intent of that paper would be just to get you to go? Oh, that's sad. The intent of me writing that paper was for you to be like, well, where do I sign up? Where do I contribute? Where do I donate? How do I get there and protect them myself? Where do I build my igloo? You know, it'd be that kind of action. And that's more of a didactic method of teaching. And that's what, what Paul is encouraging Timothy to find. Somebody who is able to spend life with somebody, but is going to teach them something in order to produce results. 
in order to call you to action, to teach with perhaps a bit of a bias to it, but, but with an intent of saying, I believe this is true, and I'm not just here for mere debate, but it's because I believe it is so true, I want you to follow in my footsteps as I learn how to do this too. It's not just what you learned, it's what you're going to do about what you learned. That's what being able to teach produces. Also in 2 Timothy, Paul had more to say to Timothy, so he sent him a second letter. And he underscored more of the same. He said, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Being able to teach requires that we are willing to share our lives. It involves the convergence of the many qualities of our life that God has been building within us and sharing that in the life of a student. And it doesn't necessarily mean somebody who sits in the desk in your classroom. Think of a student very broadly. It could be a buddy of your same age. It could, be, um, it could be your spouse, depending on what stage of your relationship you're in. It could be your children. It could be uh, people in your small group. So it involves the convergence of many qualities to be involved in your student's life. Think back to Gandalf. It's got all the pieces moving, but at the same time, while the big picture is moving along, it takes time for the little moments to talk to a hobbit, for instance. Maybe you have a hobbit as a student. If you do, I'm jealous. So instead, based on 2 Timothy's uh, instruction to us here, Paul's instruction in this letter, think of a teacher in your mind who might find a better way to communicate rather than jumping into emotional arguments. You know, we can always get this teacher worked up. We can always get him in a shouting match. We can always get him, you know, throwing out the personal insults or something. Is that the most effective, trustworthy teacher you can encounter? Or maybe we can think of a teacher who can respond to ignorance with kindness instead of condescension. Do you hear the compassion that came out of the Second Timothy passage? When it, when it even said, perhaps God will change those people's hearts because they're being held captive by the enemy? There's compassion in that. The more compassion we have in our communication, the less we are to belittle and to condescend. Perhaps a teacher that exercises patience until the learner is able to put some of the pieces together on their own. Isn't that so difficult? And also, imagine a teacher who's able to stand up against arguments, which is a requirement. This isn't a passive uh, instruction. Uh, just be laid back and eventually you get your chance to speak. This is, uh, this is somebody who's in the driver's seat, but somebody who's able to stand up against arguments with a gentle delivery of the truth. You see, when you have absolute confidence that what you are presenting is the truth, you don't necessarily need to underscore it all the time with volume or being vehement or any other V word I can think of at the moment, which my, right now my mind escapes me. In order to express the truth, sometimes you need to kind of go up and down and you have to get a little bit more passionate or cranked up. I, I love when Pastor Bill's getting all worked up, you know, and every and you guys respond. And when he's done, everyone's like, whoo, that was, you know, 
And I'm just kind of like, just give me a sword. I just want to run out and do something about it. Every once in a while, you need that to get a point across. But could you imagine if all he did was yell and screamed at you from point A to point B? It would lose its effect. And so there's a boldness that needs to come. But also when you know that truth is truth, you can deliver it with confidence. And confidence isn't always loud. It isn't always argumentative. A person who can't get out of their own way will never be able to be the kind of teacher that people will follow. I want to I want to put it to you. I just read you a quote here from, again, the author Gene Getz. He says, a man who is able uh, who is able to teach. This is biblically speaking is a man who is not in bondage to himself. There's a lot of different ways you and I can be in bondage to ourselves. There's a lot of things that trip us up. There's a lot of things we can't get out of our own way because we, we, we just can't get over a certain problem. So there's, there's kind of that obvious sinful side of self-bondage where we, where we know our sins. They're kind of flagrant. They're, they're out there in the open. And boy, you know, I just can't seem to get over this. And that certainly does hinder us to be effective. But there's also a self-bondage that's perhaps a little more subtle. It can mask itself in, in holiness or it can ma- mask itself in being sharp and on point. And what the scriptures are trying to caution us about is a teacher who isn't able to be trustworthy in the message, who isn't able to be um, uh, relaxed in the sense that what I'm saying is true. Instead, I've got to fight and I've got to argue because I need to be heard. I will not be disrespected like that. That person is in bondage to themselves and they have taken the place of the message. The truth of God's word is bigger than you and I needing to defend ourselves. The truth of what God wants to do for his kingdom and in his kingdom in this world is bigger than you and I can really defend. Now, he's called us to defend. He's called us to be passionate. He's called us to, to, to protest where necessary. He's called us to vote where where available and those kinds of things. But in terms of it all depending on the strength of you and me, could you imagine if God was depending on our consistency to get a message across? God is so much bigger than our need to be heard. And so the balance of these qualities, the things that we see coming out of 1 Timothy 3 that are just listed for us and and lined up, the balance of all of this, this amalgamation, can really be summed up in somebody who is mature. Maturity is the balance of a lot of these different qualities. You can take someone who's a really good teacher in isolation of a lot of other characteristics, and he may be smart, she may be able to deliver a great point, but you may not respect her too much because maybe she's looking down on you or he's looking down on you. You might find somebody who's extremely hospitable. They're able to open their door to everybody, but they don't have that kind of discernment on keeping the rest of the people in their household safe because they're always opening up to anybody who comes down the street. So uh, uh, any of these skills or these gifts in isolation can be problematic. So that's why God says if you're going to have leadership in the church, then it has to have somewhat of a balance of all of these things, and it needs to be seen in maturity. Uh, maturity has been a um, <laughs> it's going to sound <clears throat> maturity has been a struggle for me since I was young, um, but. It was a struggle for me in the opposite way of which you would you would think. I, I pick on Pastor Matt for being a kid at heart. And so my my struggle with maturity isn't what I would call the same as his, although I find him to be a very uh, a very <laughs> Freudian slip. No, I find him to be a very mature uh, man for his age. Uh, so he just has 
He just has fun. That's all. For his age. I'm not going to give him too much credit. Come on. I'm trying to be nice here. Uh, my problem with maturity was the thing was was the fact um, that ever since I was kind of like uh, 15 or 16, uh, you know, I was I think I've told you before over and over again, probably I've been involved in church and I was doing all these kinds of things. My pastor would give me an opportunity to preach. I could I, as a teenager, I'd be in front of a crowd this big preaching a sermon and I'm going, what am I doing here? But it became this natural thing to me. Why? Because people kept telling me, Brent, you're so mature for your age. Brent, you just, you know, you just... Uh. So what does a teenager do with that kind of information? So by the time my lovely bride had the wonderful gift of marrying this mature individual, guess how, which approach I took for a 19-year-old girl who was silly at heart, who was fun to be around, who, you know, the most she had had was kind of a part-time job and she was able to spend most of that paycheck on movies and snacks with her friends and all that kind of stuff and everything. So I was the maturity in her life that was going to grow her up because I've always heard I'm the mature one, you know. And so those of you that have been through our pre-marriage class understand that um, for, for someone who was raised in the church, who saw a pretty good uh, marriage situation at home, um, who had lots of teaching on marriage, who knew the Ephesians passage backwards and forwards, uh, a wife who was raised in a Christian home, her dad was a pastor and all this, our first year of marriage was a train wreck because she didn't match my brilliant maturity. And I reminded her of it over and over again. So the fact that she's still with me... <laughs> Uh, we made a bargain. She said, I want a lot of kids and I won't leave you. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> nine children later, she's still with me. But no, in all reality, uh, uh, that man sitting right over there, that elderly man right here, whipped me into shape and said, you live for your wife. She doesn't live for you. And got me to think about how a real man can be a servant to his wife and not have to have everything made about him. My wife was starting, now I was starting to see her no longer as an asset to my ministry um, aspirations, you know, like somebody who's going to make me look good as a pastor sometime in the future. She has to play the part. She started to become just the girl I wanted to be with and to marry. And so my experience with this flaunting of maturity or this thing about, oh, you're such a mature individual was disastrous for me. Why? Because it was a lie because while I may have been able to act a certain way on the inside, it, on the outside, my inside was not really mature. There was this whole playground just waiting for someone to kind of just trickle in the things I wanted to hear and the things I needed to live by. And ego just went, poof, took right over. And I look back with such um, embarrassment of the way I approached things, the way I served in my church then and everything, because I really was, in my own thinking, the cat's meow. And so... Uh, you know, didn't end up so well for me. Well, it has now, but <laughs> I had to go through a lot of a lot of trouble and a lot of embarrassment in order to get there. So I say all that to say this. We cannot judge, to be cliche, the book by its cover to say, well, this person seems to be mature or this person seems to have their act together, when instead what we should be doing is looking to what Paul instructed Timothy and say, if you see a balance of these things happening, then you know what maturity looks like. Don't just base maturity off of a couple of skills 
that seem to be impressive. Maturity is that amalgamation. It is that, that those things coming together. And maturity is what's needed in order to be, as the Bible calls, able to teach. Not able to lecture. Not able to hold an audience captive. Not able to do any of those things. But able to invest your life in the student so that the student starts to get some of those characteristics along the way. So that's where we're going to stop for now because this is going to be a, a part one and two, I think, on being able to teach for time's sake. But for now, what we're going to, to focus on is that God has called each and every one of us, not just men in this room, he's called each and every one of us to develop an appreciation and a pursuit of these characteristics. I believe the scriptures are dead on and pointed and specific when it says find a man able to teach. I, I believe that. I've seen it played out practically. I see it all through scripture that when the, when the Bible has established leadership in the church, it's male oriented for that aspect of elders and pastors. But this church in particular has been blessed through the generations by strong ladies who love the Lord and put their gifts into action. And so while we may reserve the office of pastor or elder for men in this church, we also have grown to, to uh, expect and trust the leadership of many ladies in our congregation. So being able to teach, being, um, uh, um, uh, well, you can't be the husband of one wife, ladies, sorry. There's one of those things we've got to throw out there. But being the things that First Timothy lays out should be a pursuit that every person in this room said, Lord, give me a greater measure of this or that. We need men to be paying specific attention to these qualifications and saying, Lord, is it something that you have in my future to be called to the office of overseer? We need men to be thinking along those lines as opposed to saying somebody else has got it. We have elders in this room going, we need other men to step forward, please. Uh, we need that. But until that time comes, because we will not put the, the, uh, the cart before the horse, until that time comes, all of us developing these qualities of leadership will only multiply the ministry of faith, will expand the kingdom of God. And that's really what we should be about more than anything else. Let's take a moment and just pray here and close our time together. And then we'll ask the men to stick behind as we prepare for our advanced Sunday portion. Lord, we thank you, God, so much for meeting with us. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that uh, you make it practical and intimate to our life. Uh, Lord, so many people this morning will be wrestling with just how to walk away from this uh, with the next step. So, Lord, I pray that their first step maybe perhaps would be just to come to you and say, God, make me available to teach somebody else. Make me willing. God, I know that in each person's life here that knows you, there's some aspect of their growth in you that could instruct somebody else, that could teach somebody else. So oftentimes our own confidence gets in the way. The belief that you would use us gets in the way. But I pray every single person walks out of here knowing that you have something for them to give to somebody else as long as it's grounded in your word and is used for your glory. So may the first action of every person be here. Lord, make me willing and show me who. And may you make changes in our life even this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.